Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Our guest for today's episode is Dia Khan. Dia Khan is a two-time Emmy Award-winning and twice BAFTA-nominated documentary film director and the first UNESCO Goodwill Ambassador for Artistic Freedom and Creativity. She is considered one of Norway's most successful filmmakers, having won 25 major awards and received an additional 12 nominations for her work as a filmmaker. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome. This is the Collective Trauma Summit 2020. My name is Thomas Hübel. I'm the initiator and organizer of the summit. And I'm very happy and, uh, and very curious to, to be sitting here with Dia Khan. Welcome, Dia, to our Thank summit. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. What a pleasure mm. to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy too. And, uh, <laughs> and also in my preparation up to this conversation, and I got to know parts of your work, of course, only. But um, there are, like, first of all, I think a dear friend of ours, Silla, introduced us uh, last year, and dear, and she said to me, "Thomas, you need to you need to interview Dia. She's amazing." <laughs> and then I went and I looked at your work, and I said, "She's amazing. She's right." So here we are, a year later, because I know you're very busy, and um, and what I found out by listening and deep, like immersing myself into your work is that there are some parallels or some passions, I would say, that we share. And, and I think one big passion we share is how to transcend polarization and come into a deeper shared level of humanity to take care of the urgent issues together versus uh, apart from each other. And I, I really love this. And I hear also when you speak about many things that how you create and embrace and I'm very curious about that embrace. And maybe 
like what's always interesting, I think, you know, there's our purpose in life and there's a journey how that purpose found us. <laughs> and I'm curious how your purpose found you. You know, how did you get to, what called you? When did you know this as a three-year-old girl? Did it kind of hit you when you were 20 out of the blue? Or was there, what was your path to get to, to the passion that you share with all of us uh, today? That's a very good question. Um, you know, as a child, I was, you know, coming from a, a, an immigrant family, being dark-skinned, being born in, you know, Oslo, Norway, uh, always feeling like someone who's on the outside and the inside, somebody who speaks multiple languages, who's able to sort of reside in multiple um, cultures, multiple stories, multiple perspectives. Um, as a really young child, I used to think that I was sort of um, a bit of a superhero because I felt like I could understand more people than could understand each other. Like I, I felt I could sit with my, you know, old grandfather from a village in Pakistan and completely relate to him, completely understand, and, and at the very least relate to his feelings, even if I didn't relate to all his experiences. And similarly, I could sit with like a, a, a pop music loving uh, teenager who was into like American pop culture and Norwegian, you know, skiing and whatever, and, and feel myself completely understanding of that way of looking at life and that way of feeling. So I used to think that, wow, I, 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 I'm a bit of a bridge because I understand all of them, even if they don't always understand each other. And I, and I felt I could be helpful in explaining um, to each other, maybe almost like a translator, you know, maybe where the other person's coming from. You know, why might somebody who's an immigrant feel like this or speak like this or live a life like this? And, you know, and the other way around. Uh, but, but, but as I got a bit older, I very quickly was sort of reminded by everybody in, in the wider society that these, uh, this way of being and having all these different um, hats in a way uh, was a negative thing, that it's what actually made me different. It's what, it, was, it was a bad thing. It wasn't a good thing. You're different. You're, you're, you are, it's all, all, these, um, all these hats or identities or whatever became the source and the reason for why actually I'm on the outside rather than somebody who is on the inside of all of it. So, so in terms of my purpose, I would say that's always been my feeling. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I very much found myself rejected and, and discriminated against and even harassed and threatened because I'm a woman. And similarly, uh, from white people in Norway or some white people in Norway, from skinheads and neo-Nazis and racists, you know, I was made to feel uh, that I don't don't belong um, and that I don't have a place to contribute in any of this because of my skin color. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of this double thing, both gender and race was, you know, a, a barrier rather than a, a kind of a strength. So I would say, I mean, I, I studied music for a very long time. It was my, my father's dream because of his experiences of discrimination in Norway. He thought that, you know, musical sports were the only two professions where he believed you, you will not be judged on, on you know, your gender or your, your race or your culture or anything like that. You'll just be judged on your ability and your ability to also work. So his kind of mantra to me was you have to outwork everybody else and you might not be uh, getting the door as quickly as everybody else, but once you're through, you'll be fine. 
And so, you know, but music was never, I love music still, and I loved music then, but music was never really my kind of thing. I didn't like being kind of on display on a stage. I didn't want to perform. I didn't want to sit in front of a lot of people, but I liked the creating of the music. Anyway, many, many years of, of all kinds of ups and downs with that. And then a lot of backlash from his own community, the Muslim community in Norway, who, who threatened me, harassed me, threatened and harassed my family. And it was the reason I ended up going to London, actually, as a 17-year-old. Um, but the purpose part comes in very late, to be quite honest with you. I, I found myself very sort of broken. And um, I remember I started getting threats in the UK as well when I tried to sort of resume my career there eventually. And then I packed my bags again and I went to Atlanta to some friends I have there. And I remember sitting there just in a flat, just staring at a wall, just because I didn't want to do music anymore, because I finally reached a point in my life where I realized I'm tired. I'm tired of fulfilling everybody else's expectations of who they think I should be and what they think I should do. Um, and I just, but I felt so lost and I felt so broken. I mean, I'd given up my childhood for music you know I, I would practice when children would play I mean I, I was working and touring when you know my my friends were you know exploring life and getting to experience other things and so I'd given everything to this one thing uh, and also to try to make my father feel like even though his dreams failed maybe he got to live because he used to say it he said when I had my children I feel like I was I got a second chance at life so I was trying to you know, also satisfy that. And I just got to a point where I realized, you know, I'm getting death threats for something that I don't even love doing. It's not even mine. It's his, you know. So anyway, so I'm sitting in this flat in, in Atlanta and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. This is, it's, it's, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't, you know, I never got to do the, I think I'm going to be a postman or I think I'm going to be a, you know, a, a policewoman. Or, I never got to do that because it was decided for me what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And in the kind of not knowing, the only thing that I could sort of hold on to was throughout my career as a musician, I'd always been contacted by young people who were struggling and who were going through very painful experiences. And I guess maybe it's easier for them to reach out to somebody like me who doesn't know them, who's not a part of their life, and they can share everything. And maybe they feel like, because of my experiences, maybe I wouldn't judge them. Maybe they felt like, um, uh, maybe I would understand them somehow. Um, so what I thought, sitting in that room, was maybe what I can do is try and be useful to somebody else. I don't know what to do for myself, but I'll try to see if I can be there for other people. Um, so I volunteered, started volunteering for a lot of different organizations, working with women, uh, working with women suffering violence, working with young people, and did that for a while, and then was still sort of feeling frustrated because I felt like I wasn't really doing, I wasn't putting myself to real use, I wasn't using every sort of part of me. And, and also hearing these really painful stories over and over and over again, I also sort of felt like the world should get to hear some of this. We need to share this so that we can understand, people can understand it so that we can do something about it beyond me just listening to somebody um, in a, just a private, intimate sort of capacity. And then I, 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 I basically, it, it, was, it was very sort of a random thought, but it was, it was literally, I just thought, 
I have to make a documentary film about what this does to people, what this brokenness does to people, what, what falling between cultures and being let down both by the society that you're born into and then the families that you're born into, sort of not, being, not belonging to either one, what that does to somebody and sometimes the deadly consequences of that. And I thought, okay, I have to make a documentary film. Um, and I remember just thinking, well, I've never done it before, uh, but I'll somehow figure it out. And I went to one of my music colleagues, because I, I mean, I've never done a film, never, you know, it was never a passion or anything like that. And I remember going to him going, look, I I'm, so I'm, want to tell this story. I found the story of this one young woman. I absolutely obsessed with her story, wanted to tell it. And I said, look, it can't be that hard, right? I mean, psh- you know, it's not that hard, film and filmmaking. I mean, really kind of, really flippant about the whole thing. And he, and he of course, sort of shrugs also, go, yeah, yeah, we could figure that out, yeah. And we would download manuals and sit and read all this stuff and just, you know, just like practice lighting on a dog. I mean, just, um, and it took me four years to make my very first film. And my only obsession with this story, this was a young girl who was uh, born in Iraq to a Kurdish family. Her family fled Saddam's violence uh, and they settled in London. She was forced into a marriage at the age of 17, very, very violent marriage, um, which she tried to leave, but the family tried to keep keep pushing her back into it. And once she eventually left it uh, and was in the process of rebuilding her life, and in that process she also found love, somebody that she chose, the, the community, her community in London basically found out and they made a decision that we have to get rid of her. And months later, she was killed and she was strangled and raped and stuffed naked into a suitcase and buried six feet under in Birmingham. And the sort of added tragedy of her story was that while she was alive, she'd gone to, gone to the police in London five times asking for help. She did everything that you want somebody to do. And a lot of people ask me, you know, did you tell her story because it's particularly brutal? And I said, and, and you know, these types of killings are, you know, called, you know, so-called honor killings because they, they are committed in the purpose of trying to restore the, the reputation and the honor of a family within the community. Uh, I mean, it's such a terrible description of what, you know, anyway. Um, and I was like, no, actually, it's not because it's a brutal story. They're all really brutal. The reason I chose her story in particular is when I was researching the film, the police, there was a policewoman that took the case when she'd been killed. And she went to the ends of the earth to bring justice for this girl. She extradited the killers who'd escaped and gone back to Iraq. She plucked them back, which had never happened in, in British legal history before and gotten everybody that was involved and put them behind bars. And when I was researching the film and I met with this policewoman, Caroline Good is her name, I remember sitting with her and she gave me this really kind of police, kind of very professional, very sort of stiff police interview. And then I turned off the camera and I said, look, why did you, why did you fight so hard for this girl? Why did you, you know, you could have taken your medal once you got the first guy or a couple of guys and you could have gone home and case closed, done. It's not as if you have a family pushing you to bring justice for this girl, you were done. And she, and she murmurs, she said, uh, because I love her. And I said, and it still gives me goosebumps. And I, and I remember just leaning in and I go, what do you mean you love her? I said, how can you love someone you've never met? And she just looks up at me and she said, um, she said, everybody should be loved. And she said, and this girl should have been loved, Banaz. She should have been loved. And the people that should have loved her didn't. So I do. And I still do. And 
that is the moment I realized this is the story that I want to tell. I don't want to just tell the horror story. I want to tell the love story. Uh, and because to me, Banaz's story embodies within it both the problem and the solution. And the solution is that we didn't care about her while she was alive. And this is what happened to her. And Caroline Good did care about somebody who she's never met, has no reason to care about or love at all. And she did. And what she was able to do for her, although it was too late, but what she was able to do for this girl is incredible. So the film was made over the course of four years. Every single person that contributed to the film, because I couldn't afford it, every single person that contributed to it uh, did it out of love as well, did it because they believed in the story and, and wanted to do right by her. Um, and so it happened like that. And, and my whole point of making the film was I was going to give it away for free uh, to women's organizations and anybody else who just wanted it. They can use it for awareness raising or trainings or whatever. And that was that. You know, never thought I'm going to make, make more films, want to be a filmmaker. I, I just, what happened in that living room and what happened in the process of making the Banaz film was the, that, that thing came back from me being a little girl, which is, I really want people to understand because if we continue to misunderstand each other, the consequences are deadly. It's, it's not just that they're inconvenient, they're actually deadly. And we can't afford to keep losing our, 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 our children, our fellow human beings. We can't continue to hemorrhage life in this way. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford to keep losing the bananas of the world. And so I had to also, I, I was, I mean, none of this was new to me. But, but when I was younger, I was too afraid to speak about things like this because I was afraid that if I spoke out about it, maybe divisions would deepen. And maybe racists would, for example, use stories like this and say, see, this is why we don't want these people here. See, this is why we hate immigrants, for example. And, and I realized around those years that my silence contributes to this continuing. And my silence, the, the price of my silence is far bigger and far worse than my fear and then my fear of, of, of what will racists say. I'll deal with that too. <laughs> we, can, mm -hmm. you know, it, we, we don't have to just tackle one thing. We're able to, to address multiple ills within our world that are, as you say, actually connected. It's a very long answer to your short question, but, but, it's, no, it's, it's, because, but it's because I, I, I haven't... I mean, I haven't thought about this a lot myself, but, but, but that was the point, and that was in my early 30s. I mean, this is, you know, just a, about a little under 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, so it was late. It was very late. I took too many detours, you know, but I, I guess I needed to. <laughs> yeah, or not. We don't know. We'll find out uh, the course <laughs> of your life if there were really detours or not. Yeah. But what we can say, what I hear also, is the arc of your own development, uh, and then like you you meeting like uh different moments in your life like for example it seems to me like in a way the life of that woman called you somehow because yeah. you said i was obsessed with this one yeah. story i wanted to tell this one story and obviously the police officer had a similar experience so there was something whatever you know it sounds it sounds strange but just listening to hear you talk it's it's um in some strange way, she saved my life. You know, she, she came to me at a point in my life where I was, I, I, I have no other word to describe it, but I was so broken and I was so lost. Uh, 
And so she gave me purpose. She gave me meaning. And she gave me the beginnings of, of finding my feet in, in at least trying to contribute towards being somewhat useful and trying mm. to put also my, my years and years of uh, training as a creative person to, to try and put that mm. towards something. Because I'm not a journalist. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not an academic person. I'm, you know, there's so many things I'm just not capable of doing. But, and that's what I was thinking as well, is what do I do? How can you know, do I do, a, do, I do a, like an opera about this? What do I do? And I remember just thinking, no, it has to be a documentary film because that's where I will get the elbow room to really do it. And also it'll be forgiving about the fact that I'm not that, you know, I haven't done it before. <laughs> you know, I've never touched a camera before. So it was, so yeah, she, she, she in a way has saved my life. That's amazing. Yeah. And, 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 and I was going to say exactly what you said now. We, like there were something happened in this moment that brought all of you together. There was an alchemy. And, and we tend to look at life sometimes through these polarized lenses. As I said to you before, like with the reason why we do this summit is because I believe we are living within a trauma matrix that is already thousands of years old that informs our ancestors in every generation. And, it, and some of the things have become normal when in fact they are not normal, they are hurt. Yeah. And, 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 and one effect of that hurt is this kind of othering, polarization, separation. And we judge one part from a partial perspective of the other part instead of being one web of life, one tissue, one body. one, And, and so what you told us right now, you know, I think the, the long answer was great because you, you showed us, like there is, it's easy to say, oh, there's something happened, something happened and, and you made a, a film about it, but actually they belong together. They are inseparable. The yeah. event, the lady's life, the police officer, you're, they, are, they belong to one fabric of life. Yeah. And, and I want to I want to ask you, like, given all the experience that you had so far, and I know the, the beauty, what I really like about your work, that you're courageous, because I think you're jumping into things and you're doing stuff. And I think courage, also in the spiritual development, in our development as human beings, I think courage is an important factor that we are going into things and we are, we are exploring life by living it not yeah. by just talking about it. And, yeah. and, I, and you went into situations that other people would call difficult, messy, complicated. And, and why, do you, why should I deal with this? I want to have a good life. But obviously on the planet, it turns out you're not just having a good life anyway. So we need yeah. to deal with the stuff that's coming up. Yeah. And I want to ask you, so when you, all the different steps that you made so far, what did, what did you learn? What's the essence of how to meet polarization without... Because we can polarize again, and so we shouldn't be polarized, but we are. Yeah. So how do we deal with othering polarization and this fragmentation as I, human beings when we are all part of it somehow? I mean, for me, it was a... So part of it was a conscious in terms of the, you know, the moving away from fear, part of it was a conscious sort of decision around that point in my life where, you know, looking back at my life, I realized that I'd been nothing but afraid. And, I'd, and, and I, hadn't, I hadn't sort of dared to just be myself. 
and there to be whatever that means and, and to, to be the person that stumbles and makes mistakes and doesn't know what to do and all of that. You know, I hadn't allowed myself to do all of that. And I just realized that that had brought me nothing but uh, sadness and heartbreak and, and, uh, and this sense of loss. Um, and so it was a conscious decision on that side to decide that I'm, I, I choose no longer to be afraid. doesn't mean I'm not nervous and, you know, worry sometimes, but I'm no longer going to let fear decide what I will and will not do, how I will or will not live, how, um, what I will ask or will I will not ask, and which, and whether I will, I didn't want to pretend anymore. I didn't want to perform the roles that everybody expects. I wanted to just be me and just be me for me. And that's it. And in terms of the, the polarization side of it, I mean, I think having lived most of my life being the other and being othered for, for, very, for different reasons, I know what that feels like. And I've done everything. I've done the... the shouting and screaming at the, you know, when I was 13, 14 years old, I used to go, I used to, I would sometimes skip school and I would go to these uh, anti-fascist protests in the center of Oslo. And, you know, I would throw things at these guys. I would shout at them. I would flip them off. Like I would be just as aggressive back at them. And it felt very good at the time. It felt very good. It felt very satisfying to be so self-righteous and to be correct and for them to be wrong and all of that. So I've done all of that, but it doesn't do anything. It never accomplished anything. I still remained afraid of them and angry at them, and they still remained angry and afraid of me. So what's the point of repeating that over and over and over and over again? And so when I got to the point where I realized I'm not going to be afraid anymore and I'm not going to let anybody dictate to me uh, how I'm going to meet life, uh, and so that's the point where I realized I, and, and also in, in the subsequent films as well, I have been carrying some of these fears with me about some of these men's, men, whether they're jihadis or they're, they're, they're neo-Nazis. And they've dehumanized me. That's a, that's a very obvious part of the picture. We can see that. But I've done the same to them too. And it's accomplished nothing. So why not for once try, just, just, as, a, just as an experiment, try to sit with them as human beings face to face and see, is it possible for them to recognize my humanity? And is it possible for me to do the same? And the purpose of doing that is not just to recognize his humanity, it's actually to hold on to my own. Because in that process of dehumanizing him and of, of, of uh, othering him, I'm actually losing my own humanity in that process. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to do that trade anymore. Um, and so, so it was, so it's been a, I mean, it's been a l learning experience, obviously, but, but a lot of it from that kind of break in my life has become a very conscious decision. And, and the driving force has been, I have a desperate sense of curiosity, like, like a, like a sickly sense of, like, I'm, I'm so curious about people and why people do the things that they do, uh, why we do the things that we do to each other, what makes us capable of, of inflicting on each other some of the things that we do, but also what makes us capable of some of the most extraordinary things that we're able to do in the darkest and darkest of times. 
So, so I'm driven by that. I want to learn. I want to try and understand. You know, when I sat with the Nazis, it was not with the intention of, let me see if I can change them. Let me see if they can change. None of that was at the forefront. It actually wasn't even a possibility. It was just, I'm curious. And I want to hear about who he is. I don't need to know what a Nazi thinks. I don't need to know his politics. I already know that. that that's, that's the boring part. I want to know who's the human being. What's the beating heart behind it? Um, and what else is there? You know, and, and, and if I'm unwilling to go to that part of him, then I'm doing to him what he does to me. Exactly. Exactly. I want to underline this, like that you said something that I think is very powerful, that by dehumanizing somebody else, we are losing our own humanity. Yeah. And, and I think it's a very powerful statement. And it also means that we start joining the function of trauma that makes the other like 2D. I, in, in my work, I look at, at the 2D function, then you are an image, like a poster in my mind. So the Nazi is a 2D version of somebody. Yeah. But it means I lost my feeling of you. I lost a, a three-dimensional embodied expression of who you are. And I don't feel you anymore. So then I can think about you, whatever I want, but it's not anymore connected to who you are. It's to, connected to my own past, to my own assumptions, to my own conditioning, to my own ancestry. Yeah. And, but meeting, what, what I hear you did is you, and I think it's, it's very important what you said, you didn't go there just to change them. You, you went there to listen. Yeah. And that listening opens up that there's a, the Nazi is not just somebody. The Nazi can be, have a political agenda that you disagree with, but yes. can be a loving father that you totally agree with, yeah. that that fathering is actually very healthy, and the other part is something that you cannot support. But that makes it complex. And, yes. And, and let's talk a little bit about the complexity of not dehumanizing, but discerning. That's very, that's very different. It's much harder to be a discerning human being than to say this is good and this is bad. Yeah. And, and maybe you can speak a little bit too, and also maybe also what was your experience, because I think we are talking a lot about concepts in our world today, but what's actually the experience that we are having? The, the embodied experience when we are sitting with each other. So I'm very curious, what was your experience sitting there and listening and having these conversations? Because in the experience, I believe there is the transformation. Yeah. Maybe you can speak a bit to the experience you had doing this film. Well, and, and that's the, the, as I say, I was driven by the curiosity, but I didn't quite expect or even think about what does happen once one sits in close right. proximity with each other. We can see each other's face and you can see each other's expressions. And, and so the very, so as you can imagine, so I, so I did about a film about white supremacists in America and I did it because I was on the receiving end of endless death threats from violent neo-Nazis and racists in the US after doing an interview with the BBC defending our multicultural society and saying that we have to live together. Um, so I decided, okay, will any of them speak with me? And so the vast majority declined and refused to speak with me. This one guy finally wrote back 
And he actually said no, but I thought, okay, he wrote back, so at least that's, a, that's something, that's a beginning. Um, <laughs> And he and 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 then and he was he, uh, he's the leader of the the largest and oldest neo-Nazi organization in America. He's been the leader for that for several decades now. And then anyway, after a lot of pushing and pushing and pushing, he finally said, "Okay, yes, you can come. Uh, you come to this and this motel room, um, and you have one hour, and then you disappear. And I don't want to talk to you anymore." And I said, "Oh, great! This is excellent." And so, my, so I'm in Detroit in this, you know, strange motel. It's just myself and one colleague, the same music guy from before, actually. Just us going, okay, so we're going to do this interview, setting everything up. And then I'm waiting for him. And of course, then everything starts rushing through my head. What if he has a gun? Because I'm in America, you know, and you, of course, mm -hmm. you never know. What if, you have a, what if he has a gun? What if he brings people with him? What if they rob us? What if they beat us and take our what, what, if, what if suddenly, and I'm really nervous now, going, ugh. What, what have I done? Um, and he walks through the door and he comes alone. He did exactly what he said. He comes and he sits down and we start talking and one hour goes by, second hour, third hour, for lighting is disappearing. Five hours later, we talked for five hours and he said, at the end of that, he said, you know, actually, you know, we're going to this other rally. We're doing this and this over the next few weeks. You know, you're welcome to come to that. And I remember asking him going, why did you go from, I barely want to talk to you to now I can join you and I can film you more. And he said, I've never had a conversation. He said, I've never had a conversation like this before. And he said, I've never had somebody actually listen. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, what I'm used to is it just becoming a shouting match. You say your talking points and your kind of anti-racist stand, you stay in that box. And then I stay in the box of, I get to say all my Nazi stuff. And then we both win. We both get what we want for our audience or for whoever it is that we're actually speaking to. Uh, but he said, but we actually spoke to each other. And he said, so I would like to continue talking more. And uh, what you said a little bit earlier is actually exactly spot on. What we, we were both very clear. Neither one of us budged on, I disagree with you. I, I obviously don't subscribe to your worldview. And he was very clear about mine as well. He said, I have and I will for the rest of my life work actively against the kind of world that you want to live in. But, you know, once we started talking about our lives and I would talk to him about what it was like for me as a six-year-old to go to an anti-racist protest with my father, what it was like for me as a child to see our, our, our family and friends' homes and uh, businesses be vandalized by racists, and for me to be spat in the face at the age of 12 by a white guy telling me to go back where I came from, you know, all of this stuff and my friends, my, my brother's friend who was stabbed to death by, you know, all of these things I would just share with him and share with him and I would ask him about his life as well. Um, there we didn't disagree, but what I could see when I would share with him my experiences, because I love people's faces very much, uh, it's why my f films are usually mostly just about people's faces, which a lot of people think is boring, but I, I love what happens to people's faces when they're thinking and speaking. Uh, but he looked uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. and, and he looked uncomfortable, almost like somebody who kind of cares about you and feels a bit protective of you and doesn't like that you were treated like that as a six-year-old or that somebody spat in your face. And a couple of times I even s pushed him a little bit because... Uh, you know, I've read him some of the threats and I use some of the language that they used about me. 
uh, and he's squirming and getting very uncomfortable. And then he even said, he said, stop saying that. Why do you keep saying that? And I'm looking at him going, this is all language you use. This is none of this is new. This is all language you use or your, your fellow travelers use. Why is this so uncomfortable? And he just said, well, just stop saying that. And so I'm starting to see that other thing in him. It's difficult. You can, you can see it real time in his face. It's starting. It doesn't compute. He's holding on to his ideology, and then he's sitting with this person who he's enjoying having this conversation with, and he's even connecting to some of my experiences, and I'm connecting to his experiences, and, and then we drag in his Nazi stuff, and he's just going, oh, it's not comfortable. And, and so I liked him. I actually liked him. After those five hours, I, of course, disagree. And I said it to his face many, many times. I liked him. Uh, and in fact, over the course of the filming, I started making sort of fun of him and myself a little bit, saying, you know, I've become like this annoying sister. I keep poking and prodding you and making you talk about things and, and making you really think about certain things. And, and you know, we would talk about things like, um, if he, you know, trying to make him feel or empathize with the experiences of the other um, and he would often say no but you know we don't promote hate you know we're not here for hate we're just trying to protect this and I said look I understand you're trying to hold on you you perceive it you because everybody's a hero in their own mind nobody's the villain in their own story right so mm -hmm. he's not doing he's not being a Nazi because he thinks he's the bad guy he being I mean it sounds so counterintuitive but you know he's doing everything he's doing thinking he's doing the right thing and I even asked him that I said what if you're wrong and he's like well I've never thought about if what I'm doing is wrong you know I, I, I'm I'm working out of I'm doing the right thing you know his reference point is just something else and so we had all these very long conversations and then there was one really uncomfortable, I mean, there was lots of violence and all kinds of other very bad things that happened. And he was very protective. He actually, because uh, uh, I ended up filming, embedding with him and his group in, at the Charlottesville uh, march in America where a young woman, Heather Hare, was killed. And he actually protected me. He actually, you know, made sure that I, 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 something didn't happen and was constantly a bit concerned. And the morning after that, I remember he, with one of his guys, I had a very kind of a bad run-in with him. It was a very, very difficult conversation. And I remember looking at Jeff, this is the leader of the Nazi group, looking at him going, I know you're not like this. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're not like this. You're not a part of this. You can't do this. You know, I know you're a good guy. I really know that you're a good guy. You know, this is not for you. And he just stood there. He never said anything. And then I got a phone call. And I've stayed in touch with him. Um, the last day of filming, I walked up to him at the very end. He was getting into his car. And I said, look, is it okay for me to give you a hug? I said, I've spent so much time with you now. Can I just give you a hug? And, you know, thank you for being really patient. And thank you for putting up with me and all of that. And he gave me a hug. And he said, uh you know, yes, you do have a brother now. And I thought, oh, okay, that's an interesting thing for a Nazi to say, okay. Um, and then about two and a half, well, actually, last year, he gave me a call and said that he's thinking of publicly coming out, that he's left. He said he's resigning, he's stepping down. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened with two other racists that I met with. And so the intention was never... And, and they called me a friend even in the process of making the film. 
and one of them resigned in the process of making the film and the reason he resigned is he couldn't stomach seeing me treated aggressively and violently because by this point he'd started considering me a friend so these are Nazis these are the monsters under our beds and I'm not saying they're all like this and everybody we can reform or anything like that but to me this shows that that capacity exists and so if that capacity exists surely we cannot afford to give up on that That's right and and often at this point somebody might jump into the conversation and say yes but but yeah and if we don't do it and if we give a space to what you said right now we can just allow the depth and the beauty of what happened without perpetuating the tendency of the past to disrupt it but to give it space to grow and i think that's very important because there is no argument say even when somebody came now and said yeah but dear listen you know these are three people and there are thousands and what but why why do we want to do that why we cannot just stay and say amazing and let's explore the principle of what happens when we connect what is actually what was disconnected and yeah. got connected why are we talking you know the the, the pre-assumption in life is that we are separate and in order to not be separate we need to connect yeah. so the way we talk about relation is already based on the pre-assumption that we are separate yeah but so when we look at the, that's why I ask you that I'm very interested in your experience because in your experience you are describing a sense of intimacy, a sense of synchronization, of coherence, of of op of looking through the mutual everybody through his or her past in order to see the mutual space that you inhabit in that moment in the conversation, yeah. because there is a lot of past standing between you and him, and. But in the moment you allow this connection, certain things are not possible anymore. Yeah. And I want to highlight, because it sounds like, okay, it's, it's just an example, but it's, for me it's an important example to show what every one of us can do in our lives. We are not expecting from you to deal with all <laughs> the neo-Nazis in the world. It's not your job, but you're, you're, you're publicly showing something that something works and that every one of us has an option to do something similar where it's comfortable in uh, uncomfortable in our lives and we can do something to jump into the unknown because that's what i heard you say yeah, the recipe is you jumped into the unknown you exposed yourself to discomfort and you transcended something because of that yeah. Yeah. and i think it's amazing so that's why the the kind of uh, regular criticism I see this as a perpetuation of the past when something new arises instead of stopping say, wow amazing let's let's nourish this plant yeah the, you, you understand what, what I'm saying it's, you, absolutely. it's something to be nourished absolutely and to grow to be grown I mean it's it's I, I agree with you this is where the collective trauma and our collective sort of stuckness comes in every single time it's like a reflex you know right. and it just prevents us from i'm constantly so i make films about very very dark subject every film that i've done is very dark uh 
But the reason I make it is not for the darkness. I'm always looking for the light. I'm always looking, where is that crack? Because I know it's there. And even if it's not there, it will appear if I spend enough time there. Mm -hmm. um, because then I'll, I'll finally, they'll finally allow me to see it. So I'm always looking for that crack of, of possibility of, of something better, something else, something deeper, somewhere where we do connect. Even mm -hmm. if on the surface there's all these barriers and all these walls between us, there will always be that something there. And, and one of the things, you know, when people, because people do always say to me, oh, you know, but this is just three Nazis and oh, you know, I'm not going to go out and talk to Nazis. And that's, that's actually not the point. The point is not that people should have to go talk to Nazis. People, you know, the, the point is what people are capable of, what we all have in us and what we're all kind of uh, able to invite out of each other and what we are all waiting for somebody to come and listen. Nobody has ever listened to these guys. Nobody. And what I did find is that the reason many of these guys end up, and, and this is true not just for the Nazis, I've done exactly the same type of filming and, and time, you know, several years I've spent with jihadis as well. The, 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 without fail, one of the common experiences that both these types of men have is at their most broken in life, one of these guys or one of these groups came, took the time, to understand when people say, oh, it's just one guy. And what I try to explain to them is they also become Nazis one guy at a time. It is one recruiter or one person online or whatever that sits there and grooms them and takes the time and makes the effort. It's that word again, cares about them, or at least shows, makes the actions of I care about you, even if they don't, even if they want to just exploit their pain and their, their brokenness for their own political gain. But the way they recruit these guys so systematically is, is so profound and is so disturbing that they have figured out the, the method of how to reach somebody's heart and how to build loyalty, how to build trust, how to build connection, and how to build it to a point where people are willing to die for you. And here we are sitting on our end going, Ugh, but they're just scumbags. They're just this, Ugh, you know, they're a lost cause. Let's just move. They're being put to use. And they are, uh, they are recruited and invited in with caring and with love and with acceptance. I accept you all your frustrations, for all your anger, for all your whatever. And then of course it continues on to, and here is the reason, here is the target for all of those feelings. This is whose fault it is. It's not your own, but this is whose fault it is. But every single thing that lures them and prepares them emotionally to become that Nazi or to become that Jihadi are all very, very simple, basic human needs that you and I have, everybody has. And we all get those satisfied one way or another. And this is the way that they do it. And they would say, look, we've experienced racism. I experienced this in my, in my family. I experienced this. I experienced that. And, and the anger, and it just built and it built and something. And, you know, and I see the, the, the injustices happening in this part of the world and that part of the world. And, and I remember sitting there with them going, oh, my goodness, I agree. And I agree with this. And I agree with this thing that he's saying. And I agree with this, too. And it just drove me crazy thinking, so what is it that made me pick up a camera, him pick up a gun? What's the difference? If our experiences have been 
pretty much the same. In fact, I can add to some of their experiences and go, well, I've had the additional kind of handicap of being a woman too. So I've had to do all of that on top of whatever you've experienced. So what is it? What's the difference? I'm not strapping a bomb to myself. What's the difference? And the only answer I kept returning to and kept finding was when I was at my most broken and I was at my most lost, when I really needed somebody, people who care about me, people who love me, people who wish the best for me are the people that showed up. For him, when he was at his most lost and his most broken, a recruiter from a jihadi group turned up or a Nazi turned up outside his school when he was being bullied and offered him, you know? So that to me says something not about him. That to me says something about us, says something about us and our failure as a society and our failure as his community. These are all members of our communities. These are all members of our extended families. And we are part of letting them down. We are part of pushing them away. We are part of making them so desperate and lost that they're become so easy to recruit by these people. You know, I remember with ISIS, when ISIS was really, really uh, being so effective with their recruitment, uh, I mean, they, were, they, had they had recruiters on Twitter and online and everywhere that were spending hundreds of hours hundreds of hours on one young person talking about their problems, talking about what they're going through in life, talking about and being there for this person, building this intense connection and bond and trust and loyalty. And what do we do? Nothing. We don't care about that kid until he's on the news and has blown up something. Before that, he's invisible. But we give him what he wants once he does something awful. We reward as a society, we reward his horrible, horrible, violent behavior. But we never see him when he feels small and he feels insignificant and he feels alone. We're not there. We don't see him and we don't care. You know, so it's, it's and none of this is to defend, obviously, their actions. None, I mean, I've been on the receiving end of people like this my whole life and I've despised them my whole life. The point of saying all of this is this, all of this we can solve but we have to want to, and we have to commit to each other, and we have to want to make this work. We have to be able to see each other as part, you said it too, as part of each other. And if we're unable, if we're gonna continue dehumanizing people just because they dehumanize us, then the cycle continues. Then how, how is anybody any different then? Absolutely. You know? So we can do something about this. I mean, that's the, you know, being terrified of these types of guys my whole life. You know, that's the one, I, at the beginning of making these films, I was very pessimistic about, you know, these types of people. But I've left them so hopeful and realizing, oh my goodness, it's their capacity for that is there. And their recruiters see it. They see their capacity. They see what they have to offer. We don't. Mm. Yeah, this is very powerful. And, um, and I... I want to underline another thing that I hear, like I heard so many principles in what you speak. I'm, I'm coming back to the principles because I think that's very powerful because it's something that every one of us can walk with, can contemplate on and can maybe also translate into our lives. And one principle, you said it's, and my films are always dark. There's a darkness 
and in the darkness there is a light, which is a principle of transformation that if you really want to transform something, it's not going to be just an easy ride most of the time, but often it, it includes that we have to integrate part of our past and take it into a new future, not leave it there and try to get away from it, because that creates exactly the parts that we don't want to see. And then, so I heard you say it needs courage, it needs the willingness to feel discomfort, and it needs us to examine what we cannot see, what we don't want to see, where we want to look away from. Why do I want to look away from that person? That if I am present enough to be able to examine this, not to judge it, oh, I should be looking at the person. No, I'm, we're just asking, let's just examine the act of looking away or not wanting to see that person or putting a label on them so that it's quiet. So, mm -hmm. and I think you speak to many of those principles that every one of us can practice in our lives because these are, this is something that everybody can do and it's, 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 it's difficult and it's simple at the same time. Yeah. It's simple as a principle and it's difficult in practice. And, and then I want to speak to maybe to hear you speak a little bit to the part, because I think these are, these are seemingly small things, but I believe they're really big things, because you spoke to belonging, how to cultivate belonging, and, and I know you're, you're a mother, and, and for us to be there for our children, to create a healthy belonging is one of the most important things we can do for a better world. So I think maybe you can speak us a little bit to you as a mother and as, as somebody that is very active in the social field. So that's one question I have still. And the other one is, um, what gives us, like what can give us the power to, to examine that which is, seems dark? Because usually it's the past, it's the, the undigested past that we uh, not uh, seeing through, that creates some kind of darkness. What gives you power to be in those um, areas long enough to, to illuminate them? So how can we, because we all, it doesn't matter if it's political polarization in the US or anywhere else in the world or racism, anti-Semitism, there, there are enough things, or climate change and climate refugees, there are enough trauma, potential trauma fields and what gives us the strength? How do you resource yourself to stay in those places long enough for something to emerge? So, so I don't want to sound like t uh, too um, sugary or whatever, but, but, but really the truth of that is um, it's love. You know, uh, I know that if I'm met with harshness, if I, and, and this comes back to the be, becoming a mother, you know, sort of is, is reconfirming to me all these things that I, I feel and think and try to live from. Um, you know, if I'm met with harshness and I react back in harshness, it just kind of give more, gives more power to harshness mm -hmm. um, and doesn't interrupt it. And similarly, you know, when people talk about, you know, hate or violence, you know, if you meet those stands in a way with the same uh it just actually gets bigger it gets stronger and so to me i've never felt that that moves us forward and my interest is to move ahead how do we get through this not get stuck there 
or go somewhere else? How do we actually get through it? And the only thing I've found in my own life or in, in work as well is you get through it because you have to come from a place of love. And your, your, your tools, your instruments, uh, it, it has to include love. And from love, you know, it is listening. Um, it is, I never treated these men no matter how awfully they spoke to me, I never spoke to them in a way that diminished their dignity. I never spoke to them in a way where they felt humiliated, ever. And I was very, that was very important for me because I know what uh, humiliation can do to people and especially to young men. So I never touched them there. Um, Dignity and I think also empathy. And I think the, the, the empathy part of it and the, even the listening part of it, I feel goes back to my music training. So the music training that I received for many, many years as a child was North Indian classical music. And so that uh, discipline is based around your ear. It's based on listening. It's not based on reading music, but listening. And then, and so I realized that I have a, that, that patience and patience in listening is very, very important to the point where I could tell with the police officer, not even by looking, but just by listening to her voice, when I can push more, when it's okay for her to push more, to talk more, and when I have to pull back and understand that she's had enough. Right. Yeah? Because you can tell from somebody's just tone of voice or how sometimes it breaks or what happens. And, and all of these kind of principles of, you know, how do we apply some of this in our own lives, it's, it's again, not a matter of trying to dismantle these very, very seemingly big, dark, impossible issues. But, you know, it all happens a little bit at a time. All these problems have been created a little at a time. They don't happen overnight. And so unpicking them also, I mean, patience is very important. It mm-hmm. won't happen overnight. And it is one act of love, one act of kindness, mm-hmm. one act of, of caring about somebody and making somebody feel seen, making somebody feel like they matter, making somebody feel like you are a part of me and I'm a part of you and we're in this together. And we don't know the answers, but we'll, we'll, we'll together, we have a better shot at figuring them out. And you know, becoming a mother now as well, all of this, all of this is being put to the test in a different way. <laughs> And in a and, and in a in a more practical day to day way. And you know, if I am stern with my child or I speak to her harshly, it doesn't accomplish anything. It really doesn't. When she's having a tantrum, she's two and a half. When she's having a complete meltdown, I have to become completely calm. Completely calm and loving and patient and just dial down. I mean, my blood pressure has to go completely down rather than up. Because if it goes up, I've tried that too. It just, that actually just escalates her even more. And that was just as true as it is for my two and a half year old. And I'm not saying Nazis are two and a half year old emotionally, emotional people, but, but really the same thing happened when I would have people shouting in my face or spitting or being aggressive or whatever, I never rose to that level. So the only way to deescalate or to facilitate the space where we do something else, uh, there has to be patience and somebody has to, to show up in a different posture. Somebody has to stand in the posture of love, in the posture of patience, in the posture of discomfort and a willingness. Because it also, with one of the neo-Nazis, 
what ended up shifting his mind. And again, none of this was, I'm going to do this so that I can change his mind. None of it was like that. Uh, was ever an intention on my part. Um, but one of the things that sort of shifted his heart uh, was that I was willing to be with him. The fact that I, I was willing and still sit with him and not judge him. Disagree very, very clearly. Um, but I think that he's not used to people actually caring about him. They just shout back at him, they spit back at him, they want to punch a Nazi, and that's what it is. He's not used to it, and, and, and so he got, also got to a point where he said, I, I'm not able to do this anymore. Right. You know, right. So, so, you know, in, in our everyday interactions with our kids, with our family members, with our coworkers, everything we've talked about today applies to that. And everything, apply, you know, in, in, in this polarization that we're in and this very, very divided kind of uh, feeling that we're in in so many countries now, you know, that uncle that holds those unpleasant views, rather than avoiding him and not inviting him for dinner, it's worth maybe just slowly, slowly approaching, not with the intention, I'm going to change your mind or you need to become like me or anything like that, but just, just slowly, slowly walking through it. That's right. I think what you said right now, finding, not trying to convince each other that we are still right, but finding out more about the, the motivation that we hold inside and that you hold inside and that I hold inside and how we create connection, I think is very important. And then mm -hmm. you said something very strong because I think many people paralyze themselves to say, oh, how will we ever change this world by thinking the world is large, and what I hear you say is, yes, I can hold a global vision, but I'm still making a step at a time. Yes. And, there, and there is, I, I, it came to me now while you were speaking, like uh, references to the Tao Te Ching. And there's a lovely translation of Stephen Mitchell um, of the Tao, Lao Tse's Tao. And, and there are a few lines that correlate beautifully with what you said. The journey of a thousand miles starts from beneath your feet is one when the master runs into a difficulty she stops and she gives herself to it and because she doesn't cling to this uh, to her comfort problems are no problems for her and in a way i thought this line uh, which i like very much she because it doesn't say the master never runs into difficulty <laughs> it says when the master runs into difficulty she stops why because Trauma always comes with scarcity. Trauma comes with not enough space, not enough time, not enough belonging, not enough love, not enough something. Mm. And, and to stop creates space. So when we don't know, we need to stop yeah. and listen. Yeah. And listening creates space. And, and so I was reminded of those uh, lines in the Tao, which is a book that I highly appreciate because it's such a concentrated wisdom in, in 82 or something verses. But that, and if we don't cling to our comfort, problems are no problems for us. And I think that's also in, in your lines I heard strongly reflected. And um, 
So I deeply resonate with so many things you say because I think uh, like Otto Schammer talks a lot about absencing, which I think is a great it's a great word for the collective trauma symptom of numbness and collective numbness, how there are holes in our society where we are simply absent. Mm. And that absence creates a lot of side effects and a, a lot of so uh, social pathologies, so to speak. And on the other hand, I heard you say, yeah, but we have to become the presence to meet the absence in order to bring something new. We cannot go to the same absence and then complain about the absence that we are in. So we need a resource. And so maybe as a... As a some some thoughts that you still might have so when you look into the world of today and i heard you say in other contexts like social media supports the polarization sometimes i mean there are good things and there are the shadow sides expressed both ways but we are seeing a lot of heightened polarization at the moment uh, through various political systems through various whatever situations in the world so what how do you look at this through the lens of yourself and your work how what are potential next steps how do we deal with the world that seems to get more and more polarized um, I, at the moment I mean I think that the, the only way to stop that or interrupt it or at least slow it down is to be part of the kind of antidote to it and the only way to be the antidote is to behave almost exactly in the opposite way <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, so rather than being closed, rather than being hard, rather than being cold, rather than being, uh, rather than othering. I mean, we, we essentially, we have to open up. Everything is tightening around us. Everything is becoming closed. Everything is hardening between us. Um, and we have to do everything that we can within our own contexts to chip away at that and to, and to contribute to making little cracks of you know for light to come through for connection mm -hmm. to become possible and i think uh but we have to be patient you know this is not fast food this is not you know instant gratification this is something every where we are today it's taken us a long time to get to this point it's taken us a long time to unravel and and, and break things in the way that we have and so we also have to have the patience to do uh whatever little or big that we can to uh, to contribute to opening. What we need is people's hearts opening. Right now they're closing. And I mean, to me, I always think about, well, what is it that I would like to hear? What is it that, you know, my child wants to hear? What is it, you know, is it, or maybe you don't want to hear something, maybe just needs to be hugged, or maybe you just need to smile. You know, my brother, he, he does a lot of public speaking in Norway. It does a lot around mental health and especially for young people. And at the end of each speech that he uh, does uh, at the school, you know, they always give him like this big, beautiful bouquet of flowers. And he always takes this and on his way home, he always walks down the street and he runs and he finds somebody and he just walks up to them and said, you know, this is for you. I think this would be, you know, I think you might really enjoy this today. And he said, just what happens to people's faces? I mean, that's nothing. It's nothing to be sweet or kind to somebody that you don't know know nothing about. My, they might be having a great day, they might be having an awful day. But I think just showing up to life, uh, not with a heaviness, uh, but, but with kind of carrying with us hope. I think hope actually is one of the most powerful tools that we have. 
because when we think about, oh, this is so big, oh, this is so complicated, oh, this is bigger than me, I just, I'd rather just hide and get away from this. That's what anything oppressive, that's what it wants from us. It wants us to give up. It wants us to think that this is too big for me, right? Anyone that tries to oppress us, any system or person. So to me, hope, and I've, I've said this before too, but I, I, I really believe that hope is a, is a, it's a, it's a, it's an act of defiance. It's a, it's a, it's an antidote to the apathy and to the numbness that you're talking about as well. Because I think in there, and that's what I've collected when I've made these films, that's what I've collected and taken with me is not the pessimism that I started with, but actually hope that there is light. There's always possibility for change. It's always there. If we all have it within us, if we all have the capacity to do amazing things and to do awful things, that's no different for anybody else. So I think it comes down to each one of us to do what we can, even if it is just the tiniest gesture of kindness and love and caring towards somebody that we might not know and wanting nothing in return. Just doing it because you're putting something else out there that is so tense right now. Whatever we can do to loosen up people's bodies and people's hearts a little bit is, mm. is I think, worth doing. It changes the room if you walk in with a smile or with a lightness. It changes the feeling of a room. So we just have to do that. And that might be very small and it might be trite. I don't know. But I've seen it work. Uh, and it's one thing I know we can do. And it doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't cost us to be loving and to be caring and to be to other people how we wish people might be to our children. Mm-hmm. Right, and and it seems to be also that, uh, as you spoke at the beginning about um, the you being relentlessly curious about human relations, that in a way your own soul's journey or your own mission in life is to bring that deeper and deeper into into our society, and also when I listen to your words, I think that uh, it's very obvious that. As your first film started, it looked like it's it's it, you didn't plan on on winning awards and bringing out films. So sometimes people see look at people that uh, followed their passion and also became more known as okay in big steps. But often those big steps started as the first experiments, and and because it's connected to something that we really care about, and you really cared about this woman. Yeah. It's it opened the gate for you, and and I think that's a really beautiful example and a very empowering example for everybody that's looking. Yeah, I would love to contribute something, but I don't know. Yeah, but I heard you say I wanted to contribute, but I didn't know. Yeah. You know, it's not so uncommon that no. everybody who made it, uh, you know, had this great idea from age three on and you knew they wanted to make film documentaries. It wasn't that yeah. way. Yeah. And it often is not that way. For some people it is, but for some people it isn't. Yeah. And to be in the question and let life find you, yeah. because that woman found you also, yeah. same as yeah. you found her story. And I think that's a very important part that we often forget that life finds us while we find life. It's a mutual mu- movement. 
And, and I think that's what you beautifully displayed. And I think our heart has to be open for it. And, and, and that's the one thing that I deeply committed myself to, you know, about 10 years ago, and I still follow every single day, is that I will never again live a day uh, where I don't listen to my heart. Mm. Everything I do, I only listen to my heart. And I know that that comes with, you know, consequences and a price, which means maybe, you know, maybe I don't own a home, maybe I, you know, all that, those types of things, but I don't care. I mean, I, I feel free in a way that I've never felt my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I am, I will only do what feels right and what my heart says, and I will only obey that. Wherever that drags me, I'm willing to go. Uh, and so far, it's been, it's, I mean, it's been amazing. It's been amazing to, to have the opportunity to speak to incredible people and to get to sit with them and, and hear about their life uh, and what they're willing to share with you. I mean, it's such a, it's such a privilege. It's such an mm. honor, you know? Mm. And, and, you know, in, in the kind of hope of learning about them, uh, ultimately, you know, I get to learn about myself. I get to understand myself better. And I mean, what an incredible gift that is. Right. I think these are beautiful words to round up our conversation here so that like i think it's another thing to underline that you listening to them means you become more whole and you become more unified in yourself i think that's a very deep wisdom for everybody who thinks we are going out to do it for them we're actually doing it to become unified in ourselves and and that serves many people that's fantastic but it's not just a one-way street and I think it, that came out very beautifully through our conversation. Is there anything that you, any final thoughts? Otherwise, I think it's, it's, uh, it was a very lovely journey that we yeah. went through. Very no, I think, I, I think that's, yeah, I, I, no, I think that's it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I can talk to you for a long time. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah, so thank you, Dia. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And I love the sensitivity and, the, and your mission and the beauty that you bring into the world through your work. So fantastic, fantastic. Thank Many you. blessings for your work. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And, and just what a, what a just joy and a, a soothing <laughs> experience <laughs> to get to sit and talk to you. It's so nice. Mm. Thank you. I really mm. appreciate it. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review, and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.